Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. It's wonderful to be here with the saints. We're going to continue our series on the Messiah. I've entitled this series Generations of Grace, and I think we'll see the reason why today. I think we'll understand better by the time we're done here today. In this series, we're learning three truths about the coming King who will bring, a, bring complete restoration. We see first the promise of a king priest. That's what we saw last week. Uh, this week we're going to see the precision of the king's pedigree. And then next week we're going to see the protection of the king's people. I hope that you will be as encouraged as I have been studying and, and pondering and meditating on these truths. Let me... Uh, Let me pray and then we'll get started. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again and we come to you and thanking you that uh, we can be here today. And Father, though we are small in number today, Father, we thank you that we can gather and have an intimate time together. We can worship you in song. It's so wonderful to sing these Christmas hymns together, uh, to ponder their truths, uh, as has been mentioned this morning. We hear them as we go through the mall or through the shopping stores or we hear them out. We hear people singing them and they don't understand at many times what they even mean. Yet, Lord, we are here and we get to ponder the truths of Scripture and the truths that these songs convey from Scripture. Truths that, are, that have been uh, formed from, from you from the foundation of the world. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, here we are just uh, a little more than a week from Christmas. And every year, I'm, we've talked about it even a couple of times this morning, I'm reminded of the commercialized nature of Christmas in our culture. It seems that it's more about retailers and making money. You know, from Black Friday deals to Cyber Monday deals, um, which seem, which both now seem to stretch from the beginning of November to the New Year's Day. I mean, uh, that's so blurred, I and mean, that the commercial nature of Christmas is has just taken over. But as Christians, as Christians, we know that Christmas means much more to us. It means much more during the Christmas season. We have. Great reason to proclaim our Lord Jesus Christ as, as the Savior of the world. Corey Tinboom sums it up this way. Who can add to Christmas? The perfect motive is that God so loved the world. The perfect gift that He gave His only Son. The only requirement is to believe in Him. The reward of faith is that you shall have everlasting life. End quote. Beloved, this is the Christmas story that we are to proclaim. We cannot, we must not buy into the culture's version of Christmas. We must take the opportunity to proclaim the story of God coming as a babe in the manger, to reconcile man and redeem his creation. This is the story of the Messiah. Now last week we began to unpack Matthew chapter 1 verse 1, which contains some intrinsic information that Matthew expects us to understand about the Messiah from the Old Testament. He, wants us to, he expects us to understand about the Messiah, the Son of God. 
We learn the first truth that, that about the coming king who will bring complete restoration that, that, we, that we learn the promise of a king priest. Last week we learned that Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah and the rightful king of Israel and of all creation. We studied that man was created to rule as, as a representative of God on earth. Man was created in the image and likeness of God and given mandate to rule the earth and to fill it. God also placed the man in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. And we saw the connection then between the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle. We found that the tabernacle pointed back to the garden. Therefore, we understand that Adam was placed in the garden to protect it from evil. But he failed in doing so in disobeying the word of God, so the, the, he failed in doing so when he and he disobeyed the word of God when he allowed the serpent to, de- to deceive his wife. And his failure to righteously rule and keep evil from the garden threw all of mankind into sin and subjected us to death. Now, ultimately, I want you to know that it was a failure to obey God. It was a failure to obey His word, and we have been failing then in that ever since. Ever since. In other words, he failed as the king priest. But in his failure, God spoke of another that was coming, another coming king priest who would perfectly fulfill man's purposes. And today I want us to continue to consider Matthew 1, especially through the lens of the Old Testament, as we consider the second truth of the coming king, the precision of the king's pedigree. Now you'll notice in your bulletin that you have a a second uh, a, a sub-outline under the, the precision of the king's pedigree. And what we're going to see is man's hopelessness remains, is the first point. The second point is man's hope renewed. And the third point is man's hope refined. So let's just start and see what, where, where the Lord takes us. Have you ever thought about the genealogies of Scripture? Or do you see them as flyover country? You know, the, the people who live on the coast, right, they see the middle part of the country as flyover country. You just kind of fly over the top of it and you don't really, you don't really visit it because it's not, there's nothing worth visiting there. And so some of us see the genealogies of Scripture as that flyover country. There's, there's not much to see there. But what I'm going to tell you is if you'll take time, if you'll take time to study them, I'm certain that you'll be blessed. If we consider the genealogy of Jesus Christ in Matthew 1 and Luke 3, we will find that it is is really an abridged tribute to God's grace throughout redemptive history. You could call them, as we've titled this sermon, Generations of Grace. Again, Matthew wants to show us that Jesus is the King of Israel and the King of all creation. He is like no other king ever to live and that will ever live on this earth. The people God chose to be part of His line, of the Messiah's line, uh, revealed the wonderful grace of God, which should provide hope for every believer. So as you study the genealogies of our Lord Jesus Christ, as you study the genealogies of of the Messiah, it should provide you hope. As you see how God has wonderfully worked out in lives, uh, His grace in the lives of those who are part of uh, the, the line of the Messiah. Now, we mentioned last week that the genealogy of Matthew and Luke uh, tied directly to the genealogies of the Old Testament, specifically the genealogies of Genesis. 
So we must understand that the genealogies recorded in Genesis, we must understand those genealogies, that is, to understand the story of the king as described by Matthew and Luke in the Gospels. Now I want to continue to teach you about what we've called the messianic, or the messianic expectation, or said another way, the expectation of the Messiah, which I would say, I believe, is started in Genesis chapter 3. Ultimately, the, the, the gospel writers tie into this messianic expectation. There was an expectation of this coming king who would come and, and save them all. But I would say that we need to understand the foundational material that we must understand their foundational material that found in the Old Testament in order to understand what they are writing. So turn back to Genesis chapter 2. Now I just want to remind you as you do that, Matthew 1, where we're getting this is, is Matthew 1, verse 1, Matthew simply says, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And I, what, what we've been saying is, is that there is much information that Matthew expects you to understand in order to understand what he is saying in that statement. So when you turn back to Genesis chapter 2, I want you to understand that Genesis is broke, broken down into parts. And these parts are separated by the phrase, this is the book of the generations. Now that should sound familiar if you listen to, or you, if you just heard Matthew chapter 1, it sounds very familiar, very similar, right? Look at, look at Genesis 2.4. It says, this is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. That's the same phrase. This is the account of the generations, or the account, I'm sorry, of the heavens of, uh, and the earth when they were created. Now it's, it's the same word, toledot, in, in Hebrew. If you, look, if you look over at Genesis 5 1, you're going to see the same thing. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Look at Genesis 6 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. If you look over at Genesis 10.1, you're going to see these. 10.1. Now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. If you look over at Genesis 10.32, it's going to say, it says that these are the families of the sons of Noah's, Noah according to their genealogies. Similar wording. In every, in every situation we have the Hebrew word toledot. Now, what we have to understand is that, that Genesis is put together into, in, into these different, uh, into different parts by this phrase, these are the generations. So clearly, now we looked at, at Matthew 1.1, clearly when Matthew starts his gospel with the phrase, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, he wants to establish a connection back to Genesis or the book of Genesis. Now the question then is why does Matthew want to establish this connection? And I again I believe the answer ha- lies in what we have called the messianic expectation that that Matthew Matthew says that this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. As we learned last week the fall of man after the fall of man God was 
was pronouncing a, as God was pronouncing a curse on 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 the serpent for deceiving Eve, God told the serpent that He would send someone to crush the head of the serpent. He says, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Look, listen to last week's sermon, and if you uh, weren't here, and you can learn all about that. But I believe from that point forward, from that point forward, there was an expectation of a coming Redeemer who would crush the power of sin and death and Satan and would restore man back to the garden. Or really, something much greater than the garden. For eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who believe in Him. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.9. Therefore, then the genealogies of the Old Testament are very important for us to understand as Christians. Because they trace with stunning precision, and I hope to show you this today, they trace with stunning precision the line of the coming seed of the woman, the coming Redeemer, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, almost immediately after Adam and Eve were driven from the Garden of Eden, we, we see the first instance of this messianic expectation. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'd been, just been kicked out of the garden or out of, the, out of paradise, and God made me a promise that my offspring would restore me back to that place, I would expect and hope that it would happen quickly. And you would expect that Adam and Eve would have this same expectation. Now look at Genesis 4, 1. It says, Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain. And she said this, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Now I don't know about your translation, but my translation, the NASB, if you notice, if you have the NASB, it says that, the, or it shows... The, the help of the Lord or the help of is italicized. That shows or signifies that, that those words have been added by the translation committee to help with understanding. Because translation isn't a one-for-one translation. And so they, they add words at times and they italicize so that we know that those words are not in the original, the original text. In this case, you could translate this verse, I have gotten a man with Yahweh. I've gotten a man with Yahweh. That's a little bit different. You can understand then why they would add the help of, right? If, he, if I've gotten a man with Yahweh, then you could, the idea could be I've gotten a man with the help of Yahweh. So you can see how this would lead to that translation. But in the Hebrew language, the word translated with could also be a marker which points to the direct object of the sentence. Don't, don't, don't let me lose you. Don't let me lose you. It just means that it might not be, tra- it, it wouldn't, nec- wouldn't necessarily be translated. It just points to what is the direct object in English. And so you could translate this word, or uh, an understanding of this, of this phrase could be, I have gotten a man, Yahweh. Now let that sink in for a second. You could take it to be with Yahweh, or you could take it, I've gotten a man, Yahweh. Now, either way, whether it's one or the other, She recognizes, and I want you to get this, she recognizes the divine nature of having offspring, but specifically, she recognizes the divine nature of this coming Redeemer. That that this coming Redeemer is coming from God. Now, 
Ultimately, I think that she thought Cain was this coming redeemer, her firstborn son. Now, that doesn't take it doesn't take us very long to see that Cain was not the coming redeemer. As a matter of fact, Cain was the seed of the serpent, not seed the seed of the woman. Cain was the opposite. And we see that because Cain, very quickly, the Adam and Eve had, had another son, and Cain killed him. Cain murdered him. And so Cain became a murderer. Now there's much more that could be said of this, but not only do we see uh, that, that she expected that there was a, this coming Messiah, she also expected that he would be a God-man, that he would be one from Yahweh. That he would be like Yahweh and he would be like man. He was from Yahweh and would be the seed of the woman. Now the rest of the chapter is incredibly interesting. But I want you to notice that Cain's line, see what I said is Cain then became or was the seed of the serpent. And so we see from that point forward the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman fighting. There's there's an epic battle that goes on from that point forward. And so we, we see then that Cain's line proliferates and that, that the, the evil on the earth became rampant. And this evil was, was clearly modeled by the actions of Lamech who said, who began to boast about murdering. He, he began to boast about murdering others. And we, so the idea there is that the evil on the earth became rampant and, and, and was threatening to, to overcome the seed of, of the woman. It seemed that the seed of the serpent would triumph. Then the text says this in 4.26, right at the end of chapter 4. It says, To Seth, to him was also, also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And then listen to this. Then men began, began to call upon the name of the Lord. So what you have to understand is that evil is proliferating. The, cane, the seed of, 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 the, of the serpent seemed to be overcoming the seed of the woman. But we see that Seth was born and men began to call upon the name of the Lord. In the midst of all this evil chaos, men began to call upon Yahweh for help and deliverance and God answered the prayers, their prayers. Beloved, no matter how bad things seem, we, we can have ungodly politicians. We can have chaos and persecution. Yet God will remain faithful to His people. Just this past week, the pastor of a Chinese home church was arrested for his faith. Now these, these events, the events of this arrest, actually they began to arrest several many people in the church. So quite a large church in China. In China. Uh, this man it seems to be a very solid Christian, solid, solid pastor of the gospel. Uh, he was arrested, and, and I think the events of, of this arrest illustrate God's faithfulness in the midst of, of even as wicked men persecute. You, you see, in Seth's day, in, in Genesis chapter 4, their only hope, the only hope of man was Yahweh. In our, in our own day, the only hope of man is Yahweh. Right? Listen to this excerpt of a letter written by Wang Yi, the arrested pastor. Listen to this. For the mission of the church is, is only to be the church and not to become part of any secular institution. From a negative perspective, the church must separate itself from the world and keep itself from being institutionalized by the world. 
From a positive perspective, all the acts of the church are attempts to prove to the world the real existence of another world. The Bible teaches us that in all matters related to the, to the gospel and human conscience, we must obey God and not men. For this reason, spiritual disobedience and bodily suffering are both ways we testify of another eternal world and to another glorious king. End quote. Beloved, we have another glorious king. We have a king that is not, who is not of this world. And in Genesis 4.26, we see that godly men began to call upon him as they suffered at the hands of the ungodly. And they've been calling on, upon him ever since. Now I want to draw your attention quickly to the genealogies in chapter 5. It says this, this record in chapter 5 takes us all the way from Adam to, to Noah, from creation to the flood. First, I want to tell you, show you something that should jump off the page at us. In Genesis 5.3, it says, When Adam had lived 130 years, he became, became the father of a son in his own likeness, according to his own image, or according to his image, and named him Seth. Then, then the days of Adam, after he became the father of Seth, were 800 years. And he had other sons and daughters. And in Genesis 5.5, it says this, So all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. And if you look at 5.8, it says, And he died. If you look at 5.11, it says, And he died. 5.14, it says, And he died. And so forth and so on. This ties back to the warning that God gave Adam that in the day that he ate from the fruit, he would surely die. He would surely die. Now I want you to see another, another connection in the text. In Genesis 1, 3-5, it says that God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness, and God called the light day. And the darkness he called night, and there was evening and morning one day. And each of the next six days, next five days after that, that is, of creation has a similar formula marking each day. But take a look quickly at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And by the seventh day God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it He rested from all His work which He had created and made. So the, the formula changes in the seventh day. Ultimately, there's a lot to say here, but ultimately God had completed His creation and it was very good. And so we understand that God rested, in the sense that, not in the sense that we rest, but that He rested from His creative work because His creation was complete and perfect. And it was to remain that way. That's what it was created for. This rest was, it was created to remain at rest. And we must understand then that the creation that we see today is aberrant. As Paul states in Romans 8, 19-22, the creation groans for redemption. The question is who will give that redemption, right? That's who we're looking for. Who will bring redemption? And this is the Messiah, the Redeemer. He's the one who will bring ultimate rest for His people and His creation. Now, I want you to look at, at Genesis 5.28. I want you to see what I'm talking, what, what the connection I'm making here. 
In Genesis 5.28, it says, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father of a son. Now he called his name Noah, saying, This one will give us rest from our work and the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord has cursed. So Lamech then was looking for one who would give them rest. Who's going to give rest, right? Who's going to give the rest that we're looking for? Who's going to bring rest to creation? The Redeemer. So Lamech then had an expectation that there was going to be a Redeemer, and he was thinking, it looks to me like in the text, he was thinking that Noah was that Redeemer. You see, I want you to understand that at that time, it was, it was very violent. It was a very violent time in, in, history, in the history of the world. Man's hopelessness remained and was unabated. Noah's father was hopeful that Noah would bring them rest that they so desperately needed. Now we know that Noah was not the Messiah, but in a sense the flood did bring rest to the world. Literally the entire line then of the Messiah ran through Noah and would pick up with one of his sons. He was the only faithful person left at that time. That's what I want you to understand. We said earlier that Seth, in the time of Seth, men began to call upon the name of the Lord. By the time of Noah, the only one who was calling upon the name of the Lord was who? Noah. Yet God remained faithful. That God remained faithful. Noah was not the, the coming Messiah. But Noah was the one who was calling upon the name of the Lord. If you turn to Genesis 10, you'll find that the genealogy picks up with the sons of Noah. When Noah left the ark, he had this little incident that we, uh, we don't have time to go through. But in it, he pronounced blessing on, on Shem, his son. Therefore, his line became the blessed line. In Genesis 10, we see the genealogy pick up at, at the sons of Noah. And, and, and the, the genealogy of Shem is specifically given in Genesis chapter 11. Now that takes us all the way to Abraham, or a man named Abram, or, or Abraham. Now what I want you to notice then is that Abraham is the connection point to Matthew's gospel. Remember what, what he said, what Matthew said? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of who? David, son of Abraham, right? So we see then that, that this is a connection, the connection point back to the... Back to the genealogies of, of, of Genesis. Now, Matthew, I believe, expects us to understand that the genealogies actually reach back to who? Adam. So you can trace all the way from Adam, Adam to Abraham in, in Genesis. I think he expects us to understand that. But Luke, if you look at Luke, Luke 3, quickly, verse 23, it says, When he, that would be the Lord Jesus, when he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. Now, skip down to verse 33. Verse 33, we pick up at the end of the verse. He was the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, skipping all the way to the end. He was the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. So we see then that, that the genealogy of Luke stretches all the way from, from Joseph and it goes backwards all the way to Adam. You then trace the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah from Adam all the way to his earthly parents. 
Beloved, we must understand. We must understand how amazing it is that we can trace the genealogy of our Lord Jesus all the way back to the foundation of the world. We can trace His genealogy all the way back to the first man. We can trace it all the way back to this faithful, faithful event in the garden, the fall of man, where, where God promised that there would be a coming Redeemer. The precision of, then of the king's pedigree is stunning. It's stunning. The precision shows, that God, shows God's sovereign hand. And it should show you and I that we can trust in His plan. As we explore God's grace through the generations, we see His hand even in the most minute details. Now we mentioned earlier that Matthew ties his genealogy to Abraham. Let's take a quick look at Abraham as we consider our second point. Man's hope renewed. Man's hope is renewed. In order to understand Abraham, we need to look at the background behind him. I want to, make, I want to try to make a connection to you or for you. In Genesis chapters 10 and 11, we have the Tower of Babel. And the forming of the nations. In Genesis 11, the people had one language and had settled in one place and began to build a city and a tower. Clearly, God had told them to be fruitful and multiply and spread over the earth, but they had chosen to congregate into one place. Therefore, God confused their language and they were dispersed from that, by God from that place. And we need to understand that this was the mechanism for forming the nations. But there's something else that we need to understand. Look at Genesis chapter 11, verse 4. Beloved, this is not just a bunch of information that I'm giving you. This is, a, this is I want you to understand, this is information that, that shows you how, where the Messiah come from and the need for the Messiah. The need for our Lord Jesus Christ. Look at Genesis 11.4. It says, Come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower, whose top will reach into heaven. And let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. Now God, God was, wanted them to be scattered, right? He wanted them to fill the earth. And they, they, they refused to do so. They didn't want to. They wanted to make themselves a name. We need to remember this. So as we've said, God confused their language. And, and, and then we, which really brings up a question. Now, let's think about this for a second. If there was a coming Messiah, there's a coming Redeemer, if God confused the language, and if the nations are scattered, where then is the seed? Where then is this Messiah going to come from? And how will knowledge of Him be declared to the nations? Now, I just want to make a really quick point. If you think about Acts chapter 2, the, at Pentecost, what happened? They, had the, the, they spoke in tongues, right? Right? There's a connection from there back to the Tower of Babel, the gospel going to the nations, the, the, the people being able to hear the gospel in their own tongue. But this is where Abraham comes into the picture. If you look at Genesis 12.1, it says, Now the Lord. Now, what I, when I say that, what I mean is, is that Abraham beca- becomes the vehicle by which the gospel is going to go to the world. 
He becomes the vehicle by, by which the Messiah is going to come. So very clearly, if, you, if you're asking your question, wh- what's going to happen now? How are people going to hear the gospel if, if everybody's scattered? There's nations now, right? Abraham is your answer. Abraham is your answer. Ultimately, Israel, right? Genesis 12.1 Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a what? A great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great. Now, remember they wanted to make their name great? They wanted to have a name? God is going to make Abraham's name great. But ultimately he's going to do so so that his name would be great. Because he gets all the glory. And I will bless those who bless you. I'm sorry, and, and so you will be, shall be a blessing. 12.3 And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. So we see that, that God has provided then a renewed hope in the person of Abraham. Or Abram as he is called here. Now I want you to notice, again, we, we've said it, that that He promised to make him a great nation and to bless him and to make his name great. He promises him a land and, and seed, offspring, and blessing. In Genesis 13 and 14, we see then that Abram and Lot get caught up in a, a battle with some kings. And Abram comes out victorious. Now you might ask yourself, what does all that mean? Well, if Abram is fighting against kings and comes out victorious, that means he's what? He's king. So we already see in Genesis 13 and 14, we begin to see the fulfillment of the promise that God has made to him, to make him a great nation. And in Genesis 14, we also see this. Look at, at verse 17. This is after the, he defeats the kings. We see this in, in verse 17, for, Genesis 14, 17. Then after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom and Sodom went out to meet him, that be Abram, at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. And now he was the, a priest of God the Most High. So he was a king and a priest. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God, most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God, most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And, gave, and he gave them a, him a tenth of all. So we see that Abram then now, now is a king and has been blessed by a priest, a king priest. It really takes us back to, to Matthew's gospel. You see, remember, remember, Matthew is proving that Jesus is the king and the rightful ruler of Israel and the world. You see, Abraham was not the redeemer, but he was a forerunner of the coming Messiah, the coming king priest. In Genesis 15, God reiterates the promise of land, seed, and blessing and emphasizes that Abram will be given a seed. In Genesis 17, we see a similar promise to Abraham. And if you take a look at Genesis 17, 6, it says this. So flip over there to Genesis 17, 6. It says this, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and what? Kings will come forth from you. Kings will come forth from you. 
God promises that, that he would bring forth kings from Abraham, which makes sense because Abraham was a king. If you look at Genesis 22, at just after the near sacrifice of Isaac, in Genesis 22:15, it says this, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn... Now that's actually recorded in Genesis 15 that God has sworn a covenant to Abraham and he did it by himself. And I have not withheld... And, and because you have done this thing, in Genesis 22:16, and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on... Uh, on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of your enemies. And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now the Apostle Paul picks up on this in Galatians 3. He picks up on this in Galatians 3.6 and says, Even so Abraham, listen to this, Even so Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore be sure that it, it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying all the nations will be blessed in you. Look at in Galatians 3.9 it says this, So then all who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. In 3.16 it says this, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to, his, and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. In other words, the nations would be blessed through one nation, Israel, but this blessing would ultimately flow from the Messiah, the Christ. According to Matthew, then, Jesus is the ultimate seed of Abraham. And it is through him that the nations will be blessed. He is the one who brings the renewed hope. And if you're keeping up with the progression, and I hope you are, then you realize it was man's disobedience that led to the nations, right? At the Tower of Babel, they disobeyed, and God dispersed, confused the language and dispersed them, creating what we know as the nations. It was man's disobedience that led to that, but God will get all the, the glory and the redemption of the nations through the Messiah, His own Son. And we've established the need, the need for this king priest, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at point number three, man's hope refined. Now we're about to skip over a bunch of territory. I can't teach the whole Old Testament in one shot, right? But I need to hit the, connect, the next connection point to Matthew's Gospel. Back in Matthew 1.1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So we see then that, that not only has Matthew connected uh, the Messiah to Abraham, but he's also connected the Messiah to King David. If you turn really quickly over to Ruth chapter 4, and while you're do that, doing that, I want, you to, I want to remind you a few things about David. He was the shepherd boy made king. In, in Ruth 4, verse 18, we see that, well, before I say that, he was a shepherd boy made king. He, he ruled over Israel. 
He ruled over the, the greatest time in, in the history of, of Israel. And in Ruth 4, verse 18, it says, Now, these are the generations of Perez. To Perez was born Hezron. Now, I want to point out that... Now, we skipped over Judah, but I want to point out, and we'll see, we'll see Judah next week, but I want to point out that Perez is the son of Judah. The son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. So that's the connection uh, from, from... So we're seeing the connection from Abraham to David. And to Hezron was born Ram. And to Ram was born Amenadab. And to Amenadab was born Nation. This is verse 20. And to Nation, Salmon. And to Salmon was born Boaz. And to Boaz, Obed. And to Obed was born Jesse. And to Jesse, David. So we see then the connection, as we've said, from Abraham to David to Jesus the Messiah. Now turn to 2 Samuel 7. Second Samuel 7, verse 1. Speaking of David. Now it came about when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies... That the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of, the, of God dwells in, within tent curtains. Verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3, Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But then if you see it from verses 4 to 7, we see that God comes to Nathan and says that, that he didn't, the no, no house was to be built at that time. In verse 8, we pick back up and it says, Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David. So it's 2 Samuel 7, 8. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastor, from, the, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you've gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name. Remember the connection of, of name, right? Who makes the great name? The Lord makes the great name. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them and they, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them as anymore as formerly. Even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, verse 12, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, who is this? Who is he talking about? He's talking about Solomon, right? Yes, he's talking about Solomon. But he's also talking about someone else. He shall build a house for my name. Who built the temple? Solomon. Solomon. Solomon built the temple. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Would, would, would David's son sit on the throne forever? No. Not Solomon. But there would be one who would come. 
who would sit on the throne forever. Again, we see this partially, this prophecy partially fulfilled in David's son Solomon, but it is not fulfilled completely in him, but in a coming son who would be the king. And that's where Matthew connects back to David. This king will sit on the throne of David forever. So this coming king would be a descendant of David through Solomon and a descendant of Abraham, and he will rule on David's throne forever. Then in 2 Samuel 7, 28... Did I tell you guys 2 Samuel earlier? I hope I did. 2 Samuel 7, 28, it says this, Now, O Lord God, You are God. This is David. And your, your words are truth, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant, that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing may the house of your servant be blessed forever. Now, I told you at the beginning of this sermon that we will see God's grace in each successive generation as He sovereignly guided the people of God in the line of the Messiah. Now, I hope we can prove this point as we close today and in next week's sermon. I hope that our conclusions to this sermon and next week will bring you hope, true hope, in the Messiah of Christmas, the Lord of Christmas, Jesus Christ. Now, look back at Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Now John MacArthur states of this last verse, and I quote, If we could condense all the truths of Christmas into only three words, these words would be God with us. We tend to focus our attention at Christmas on the infancy of Christ. The greater truth of the holiday is His deity. More astonishing than a baby in the manger is the truth that this promised baby is the omnipotent creator of the heavens and the earth. End quote. Now as I've told you, Matthew is trying to establish that Jesus is that foretold king who, who was the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and as Luke declares him, the son of God. Now, for Jesus to fulfill these requirements to be the Messiah, He also had to be the seed of the woman, not from the seed of man. It was promised that the woman's seed would crush the head of the serpent. He had to be the physical descendant of David as well as the legal heir to the throne of David. Now, there are a couple of problems. How could one naturally be born as the seed of without then the seed of man. 
And there's another major problem I want you to see. Look at Matthew 111. We read it last week. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel became the father of Zerubbabel. Now, quickly, in Jeremiah 22, it says, that, says this. Jeremiah twenty two twenty eight. if you want to turn back there, it says this. Is this man, Keniah, a despised and shattered jar? Or is he an undesirable vessel? Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land they have not known? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, verse 30, Jeremiah 22.30, Write this man down childless, a man who will not prosper in his days, for no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. So this man, Jeconiah, the curse of Jeconiah, he was never to rule again, his descendants were never to rule again on the throne of David. Yet we see Jeconiah show up in the, the genealogy of the Messiah. The answer to all this is the virgin birth, which was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she, she will call his name Emmanuel. You see, the, the virgin conception and birth were necessary to protect Jesus from this curse and for him to be truly the seed of the woman. I believe that this fulfilled Eve's expectation that the Messiah would be Yahweh. On a side note, it's very interesting that Jesus' name means Yahweh saves. Now, Luke's genealogy is apparently a physical genealogy through David's son Nathan and through Mary. Now, we've said, as we've said, Jesus must be descended from who? David through Solomon. That's the line of the throne. But Mary's genealogy is through David's son, Nathan. So Matthew gives Jesus' legal genealogy through Joseph, which comes through David's son, Solomon, which leads to Jeconiah. Again, the legal inheritance of the throne must come through Solomon. Therefore, Jesus had to be legally the son of Joseph, who was in the line of Solomon. But to avoid the curse of Jeconiah, he had to be physically descended from David by another descendant of David. Legally... Jesus was descended from Solomon, which gave him legal right to the throne. Physically, he was descended from Nathan. The only way this could work is if Joseph was Jesus' legal father. In Luke 3.23, it says, When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of Eli. So get this. Luke was Jesus' legal father because Joseph was betrothed to Mary before she, or when she, became, when she became pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And in Jewish marriage customs at the time, Joseph and Mary were legally married from the time of betrothal. So Jesus was conceived legally 
in wedlock. Therefore, Joseph was his Joseph was his legal father. This point is, is crucial. Because unless Jesus had been legally the son of Joseph from conception, he would not have been conceived as legal heir of the throne through David and through Joseph. And so he would have been disqualified from being the Messiah, thus disqualified from fulfilling all the predicted actions of the Messiah, including up to and including his sacrificial death. So we see God's grace through the generations. And how he, how he worked through with precision through the genealogy of the Messiah. According to the Gospel writers, Jesus, the Son of God, Jesus of Nazareth is the only one who could have ever fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah. He is the one who has prophesied in Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. He is the lion from the tribe of Judah. He is the son of Abraham and heir to the promises made to him. He is the son of David and heir to the throne. He is the one who will crush the head of the serpent. I hope you find these things encouraging. I know it's been a lot of information. I know it's been a lot of heavy lifting. But I hope you find it encouraging to think through and to to meditate on the truths of the Messiah. The truths of what God has done through His grace to those who are in the line of the Messiah. And I hope you see that we serve a faithful God who has and will continue to fulfill His promises. If you don't know Him, I, I pray that you'll call out to Him. He truly is the Savior of the world. In John chapter 4, Jesus had an encounter with a Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. And she said this, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is, who is called the Christ. When that one comes, when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Now it's important to note that this woman was considered the lowest of the low. She was a Samaritan descended from Jews who had married the inhabitants of the land. As such, she was even worse than a Gentile. Yet here she was expecting the Messiah. And through this encounter, many Samaritans came to believe in Him. And they declared in John 4.42... This one, this one, Jesus of Nazareth, this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Beloved, Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world. And He is your Savior if you only would believe. J.I. Packer states this, The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity. Hope of pardon. Hope of peace with God. Hope of glory. Because at the Father's will, Jesus became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later, He might hang on a cross. Beloved, do you believe? Do you believe? He is the Savior of the world. He is your Savior. If only you would believe. Heavenly Father, we thank you again. 
We praise you for the truths that have been stated here. We see in Matthew's writing the genealogy, the history of the Messiah, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He truly was or is the one in whom all blessings flow. Father, we thank you that he has come to restore all things. And we thank you that we will see greater things still. If only we believe in your plan of redemption. If only we believe in the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.